Here we have this incident in Abraham's life that the Bible calls it a test. It says God tested Abraham. So here's the big idea. The secret to a great life, what Abraham discovered, the secret to a great life is to understand that you only become great through tests. If you want to live the great life that God has available to all of us to live, we only get there, we only arrive there through tests. I know you thought that that was just for education and driver's license and things like that, but God also uses tests. So um, let's just look a couple of these things real quickly. I want to help us understand that there are tests. I want to help us understand how the tests work, why we need the tests, and how to pass the tests. So that there are tests, how they work, why we need them, how to pass them. Number one, there are tests. There just are. Guys, we have to just accept and understand that tests exist. God has always tested people. And you see both here and in Genesis 22, we are told that God tests. So what does that mean? What is, what is a test? Now, we would might define it one way educationally or academically. Let's be brief about it, but let me give us a working definition for the context of our message this morning. A test is something that shows you and grows you. A test is something that does two things. It shows you and it grows you. So a test can show you where you're at, what you know, how much you understand, where your skills or aptitudes are, but it can also show for you where you might need to grow, what you might need to improve or change or summon up and muster the courage to, to get up there and, and, and do it. I mean, let's, let's, be, let's be concrete. Suppose you have a physics test that's coming up. And so there's a physics test on the calendar. It's good. The first thing it's going to make you say is, do I understand the material, the concepts that are going to be tested? Do I at all understand it? And if I don't, I best get to an understanding before I take the test. The first thing it does is it makes you look at yourself and say, do I know this? Am I prepared? Secondly, it makes you say, how can I get prepared? How can I grow in advance in this area of knowledge so I can meet the test? Tests show you and they grow you. Like uh, when I grew up, it was the driver's license test. I liked school. I was the nerdy one that liked school. Tests didn't really bother me too much in high school because those ones didn't feel like I had to study too much. College really rocked my world because I, <laughs> I had to study. Um, but I had this driver's license test. And, uh, you know, confession, first time I took my driver's license test, I was cruising along real nice until the very end. And then I had to do the parallel parking between the four cones thing. And I was driving a Ford Taurus station wagon. And it, I just, I hit a cone. And uh, I failed my driver's test, and it was very embarrassing to me, especially when my father, who was a preacher at the time, told the whole congregation that his son had failed the test. So, yeah, oh, don't feel too bad for me. I got over it. <laughs> but, but you know what I did? You know what I practiced? I, I didn't go back and practice the three-point turn. I didn't go home and practice. I had gotten those. I knew where to put my hands on the steering wheel. I, I practiced the part that I wasn't good at, and it was frustrating. And, you know, many dents in the garage door later, I figured out how to parallel park, and I went back again, and I passed the test, because the test didn't only show me what I already knew. The test and what it offered if I passed it motivated me enough to go do the, It's not fun to practice parallel parking. It's not fun to have your mom in the, in the passenger seat hitting an imaginary brake with her foot every time you're not. <laughs> but the test did serve not only to show me, but to grow me. But here's the other thing, letter B. Regardless of how they're administered, tests are horrible things. Regardless, let it be, regardless of how these tests are administered, tests are 
horrible things. They're horrible things. They fill you with impending doom, that there's a sense of disaster coming. They hang over your head. They're very unpleasant and therefore very effective. Did you hear what I said? They're very unpleasant and therefore very effective. That's the reason Hebrew 12 says no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, discipline produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Anybody who's been mentored, anyone who's been taught, anyone who's been coached, anyone who's, uh, we have a lot of people in the medical field. You understand, you have been through test after test after test after test after test. Anyone who's been mentored, taught, coached, has been repeatedly tested formally or informally, and as a result, you've grown. But here's something I want to leave you with before we move on to this next point, letter C. The devil tests us only to show us how weak we are and leave us in despair. But God tests us not only to show us, but to grow us, to summon us to muster up whatever we can to be something we otherwise wouldn't be. You need to understand that God's not the only one who will test you. I know we don't talk a lot about the devil in church. Sometimes we talk about him more than we should. But he exists. He's real. He's powerful. He doesn't like you. He hates you. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy you. He doesn't play fair and he will test you. And the trick is sometimes you'll be going through a test and not knowing whether it's God or the devil. (laughs) Sometimes you're casting the devil out of something he's not even in. (laughs) Sometimes you feel like you're under attack and it must be the enemy. Maybe it's God testing you to move something out of the center of your life that doesn't belong there. But here's one way to recognize it. The devil, when he tests you, all he wants to do is make you feel like a failure. All he wants to do is frustrate you. All he wants to do is convince you that you're nothing and leave you at a point of despair. He just wants to show you. He doesn't care about growing you. However, when God tests you, it's not just to show you where you're at, but it's to motivate you somehow to muster up whatever you can to be something that outside of that test you wouldn't be. Sometimes we just need a test to propel us out of where we've settled in and get us moving forward. So those are some of the, some of the re, you know, that's some of a little bit about tests. Let's, let's talk about that. Well, let, let me leave you with this thought. A teacher can be, you, there's two different ways to administer a test. There's teachers, and I've met a few of them, who use tests only for, like the devil does, just to show us, right? There's some teachers, they just, they just want to show you what's wrong with you. They just want you to fail. They want to thin the class. They like their red pen. I don't know what it is. But there's some people who will teach you things just to prove you that, that, that you're a failure. They use tests to pare down the program and get people out of the class. On the other hand, you can have a teacher that's just as hard of a test giver, but they introduce the test, they announce the test, they give you a study guide, and they prepare you for it in such a way that it doesn't just show you where they are, but they grow you. And if you want to understand the Bible, you need to understand Satan tests the first way and God tests the second way. So let's talk about how these tests work. Number two, how do these tests actually work? We get a little bit of a clue from verses 17 and 18 that we just read. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Here's the phrase. Even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. So how do these tests work? What's the nature of these tests? How do they actually operate when God tests us? We see it in verse 18 in that phrase, even though God had already told him. That's the essence of the way God's test. That's the template for every test God gives us. And here it is. A test happens, letter A, when God tests us, his command seems to contradict his promise. When God tests you, when God tests me, 
What's going to happen is what he commands you to do in the short term seems to contradict some of one of his bigger overall promises to you. Look at what, how this look played out for Abraham. God said in his command to Abraham, offer up your son as a burnt offering, even though he had already promised him earlier on, a couple chapters earlier, he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and the world through Isaac. I'm going to bring out of Isaac a great nation and a particular descendant through whom all the world would be blessed. And yet this person that he promised to him that was going to you know, make his descendants like the stars of the sky, God's saying, sacrifice him. His command seems to have no part with his promise. actually seems like to contradict it. Abraham must be thinking, but you promised that through Isaac, you'd populate the world and raise up a great nation. How's that going to happen if I sacrifice? And that can't possibly be you. When you're tested, a test happens when to obey God, let her be, when to obey God looks to you to be foolish or even wrong. You know you're being tested when, when, when in your mind it seems like if I obey God on this, if I tell the truth here, if I don't have sex, if I really yield myself to the direction God's moving me, it's going to throw everything off. It seems crazy and foolish and even wrong. I cert God certainly wouldn't expect me to obey him in this instance. This must be an exception. A test happens when to obey God looks to you to be foolish or even wrong. The promises of God are tremendous. The Bible's full of them. Let me give you three promises God gives all of us. These are great. These are the good part. Um, he says, not a hair of your head will be hurt. Some of you, that means something to me. It's not really a big deal, right? I have no hair to be hurt. He says, I'll, I will give you more than you can even dare to ask or think. He also says, I'll meet all of your needs according to my riches and glory. Those are good promises. He promises those to all of his kids. So what is a test? A test is when to obey one of God's commands appears to pull you right out of the path of blessing. So here on the one hand is God promising Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I love you. I want to shower you with blessings. But on the other hand, he says, sacrifice Isaac. And for Abraham to obey this, it looks like it's going to be a disaster. Seems to contradict. So how does this look in our world? Let me give you a couple examples. Suppose you have a child, a teenage child that's dying of cancer. And for you to continue to be faithful and obey God and pray and trust in faith seems to completely contradict what you're seeing in front of your eyes. It's a test. It's a test. It seems for you to obey, to trust in a situation like that is leading completely out of the path of blessings. What about if you know that telling the truth is going to lead to a loss of your job or money? Another contradiction. Well, God says he's going to bless me and he's going to bring me this job. But if I go to my manager and tell him what I see, I might lose my job. God couldn't possibly be asking me to do that. It seems to, to contradict. Here, here, here's some other ones. I, I, I talk to people regularly. I have a number of people in my life who would say this to me. I believe that the Bible does condemn homosexuality, and I believe that it's wrong. But yet it feels very natural to me, they would say. And so why in the world would God ask me to obey him when doing what I'm feeling feels just so natural and so right to me? Really, when you boil it down to these tests are not just about contradicting commands and promises. What it is is your wisdom against God's wisdom in a test. What you think is right against what God says is right. That's when you have tests. There's other people who say, I, you know, I understand that Bible says I shouldn't have sex outside of marriage, but if I do, that's going to ruin relationship, but it feels so natural and it feels so right to me. Why in the world would I, would I obey God in this situation? It seems to completely contradict. Don't you see the common thread in all these different tests? 
The test isn't even happening until you get into a situation where your wisdom seems to contradict God's wisdom. Tests don't begin until you get into a situation in which it looks like the path of blessing is over here. But God says, I want you to go this way. Let me put it to you this way. It's very, 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 very much the way Abraham felt when he was summoned by God to sacrifice his son. Let her see. You've not been tested until you see that to obey God looks like it will lead to a kind of death and it will require some kind of resurrection. You really haven't been tested by God until you see that to obey God looks like it will lead to some kind of death and it will require some kind of resurrection. Abraham was walking along and saying in his mind, I have to imagine saying, you know, God, if I obey you in this, it's going to bring death. And how in the world can death of Isaac bring blessing to me? And the Bible says he reasoned and he got to a point where he said, I know because I know you. It must mean that if I do obey you and it does lead to death, that somehow you'll bring a resurrection out of this. Whenever you get into one of these situations where you're being tested, that's really what's happening. You're saying, here's what the Bible says. God says to do this. It looks to me that this is just bad news. If I do this, it's trouble for me. It's disaster. It's loss. It is contradiction. It is doesn't feel good. That's what it looks like. But I I guess I'll choose to obey and it will lead me to some kind of resurrection, some kind of intervention or something I can't even see right now. That's really what it boils down to. That's what you're doing in a test In a test. You're saying, here's what I think the Bible says I should do. And if I do that, it is bad news for me. But you know what? I guess I'll just pin my ears back and close my eyes and plug my nose and cannonball into this. And if God is who he says he is, I'm going to put my faith and trust in him and he'll somehow resurrect it if it results in death and he'll somehow intervene if it really is heading me in the wrong direction. It just never really looks like it when you're about to jump into that pool. It only looks it only looks too deep and too yucky and too nasty. That's how tests work. God says to do this, even though he also promises to bless you and it looks like his commands contradict his promises. But here's the deal. Maybe... Actually, let's be honest, maybe some of you aren't even in a situation like that because you won't ever allow it to happen. The minute you see a command of God that seems to contradict something deep down. Something you feel like would bless you, you don't even struggle, you just blow it off completely. You don't prepare for the test, you don't even let it look at yourself and you say, God would never ask me, God is a loving God and he would never ask me to do that. If you've made a God in your mind that is only loving and can never challenge your will, then you've made a God that you like. He's not a he's not God at all. He's he's an idol that you made up. You put him on a little contact lens and you put him on your eyes and everywhere you look, you see this God that's just really an extension of yourself. That's not the God that we serve. He does love us and he is all loving, but he's not only loving. He also at times will test us to grow us. He'll test us when he notices that some things snuck into the center of our life, even good things that don't belong there. And he'll test us because if those things sneak in there and belong there, we'll serve those things and we'll be entrapped to those things. And that's not what God wants. So don't look for purpose all the time in a test. I know we want to, don't you? (laughs) Well, if I can just figure out why I'm in this season, then I'll be all right. And don't always look for purpose. Don't always look for meaning. If you don't want God to ever cross your will, okay, but then don't turn around and say, I have a God who will care for me, a God who will give me purpose, a God who will give me meaning. You don't have a God, you have something you made up. You've put him on your contact lenses and he's a projection of your own heart and everything that's in it. Talk about the third question. Why do we need tests? 
to give us nerds something to brag about in school. For me personally, I, I loved a good test, especially if I was ready for it. My wife it drove her nuts in college when we'd study for tests, and I'd just be all excited on test day. I was going to go show her everything that I knew, and she just thought I was sick, and I am. But, uh, you know, I, but why do we need, wouldn't life just be more peaceful between me and God if we didn't have to have these things at all? Because if this is really what these tests are, that seems pretty severe. But the answer is, again, in the scripture, this time we'll go back to Genesis 22. Here's what, why we need these tests. God's speaking to Abraham in Genesis 22, and it says this, Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. So why do we need tests? Why does God want to say, okay, my wisdom against your wisdom? Here's the answer. He says, take your son and offer him as a whole burnt offering. It's important to see what particular type of sacrifice God's asking for from Isaac. Because in the Old Testament, they had all kinds of different sacrifices. If you're really enthralled in this, just curl up with Leviticus and Numbers and just read to your heart's delight. Okay? Um, But I'll summarize very quickly two of them. For example, if you were giving a thank offering, what you would do is you would bring your offering, whether it's an animal or something from your field, and you would offer up part of it but not all of it. Part of it you would keep for yourself and it, you, know, you would actually eat it and you'd hang on to it. So you didn't have to give the whole thing. The burnt offering was different. Here, letter A, here's what you need to know what God was asking. Letter A, a burnt offering represented the giving of yourself, all you have and all you are to God without reserve or remainder. You don't hold any back. You have to give the whole thing. So when God asks Abraham to make Isaac a burnt offering, this was especially deep. He's saying, you can't hold anything back. You must give all of Isaac to me. And you might say, why in the world did God ask that from Abraham? Why did Abraham need to give this particular son as a whole burnt offering? When God originally came to Abraham in Genesis 22, he says, Abraham, Abraham says, here I am. And God says, take your son. But he doesn't just say your son. It says, take your son, your only son, the son you love. Wow. Now, the truth is, Abraham had another son, right? He had another son through Hagar named Ishmael. This was when Abraham tried to, tried to take matters in his own hands when God wasn't moving fast enough and had a kid. And it didn't turn out to be the one that God promised. And as far as Abraham was concerned, though, he had another son. In his mind, he only had Isaac, and this was the only one he loved. You don't really want to be reminded of this other situation. So God says, don't take Ishmael, because I don't think Abraham might have struggled a whole lot on that one. He says, Isaac, your only son, the one you love, make him your your burnt offering. Isaac was the little only of Abraham's life. And what had happened here was Abraham had waited so long for Isaac that when God finally gave Isaac to Abraham, he actually had become in some ways a love slave to his son. His son was his whole world. His son was the most important thing Abraham had. What's so ironic about it is because he had become, he became the love slave of his son for all good reasons. There was nothing bad about Isaac. Isaac was a wonderful thing. Abraham had waited and waited and waited for years because God said, I'll give you a son through your wife, Sarah, who will be your heir. He waited for years. And when Isaac came, Isaac was special because he represented the faithfulness of God. Not only that, Abraham was very old when Isaac was born. And of course, he was special because he represented youth to someone who was who was very old. For all good reasons, Abraham just loved Isaac. He loved him so much, it's almost like he was a slave to his son. And that's where the lesson is for us. Let me tell you something about sin. Sin's kind of like a, in some ways, 
he's a judo expert. Sin doesn't mind a 400-pound person coming at him if he weighs 115 pounds because a judo expert will use your weight and your strength against you. And if you study judo, which obviously by looking at me, you can figure out I have not studied judo, but people who study it would tell you that it doesn't matter the size of your opponent. You just watch their momentum and you use their momentum against them. And you take their strength and you make it into a weakness. Sin does the same thing. Sin doesn't always need to throw all this horrible carnal stuff. It has. Sin sometimes will take the good things in your life and just ramp them up a little too high. So they control us. The real enemy of God in your life, let her be, is not your sins. It's your good things. It's these wonderful things that become your little onlys. The real enemy in your life is not necessarily your sins. It's your good things that get turned up too high and they become your only. Do you know what that means? Take your only, he's saying, and offer it up. What's your only? What's your bottom line? You know, I've heard people say, if only I was married, everything in life would be great. All the married people are laughing and smirking at me right now. You might not say it out loud, but maybe at a deep level, you believe it. If only I lost 20 more pounds, life would be wonderful. If only I were debt free, if only I got a promotion, if only I made X amount of dollars, if only I could get my kitchen done. I just threw that in there for you, Brian. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> if only, if only, if only I had this job, if only I had this position, if only my achievements could get to this place, if only I had a certain kind of beauty, if only, if only, if only. My life would be fine. Those good things have become your Isaacs. Those if onlys. They're sapping your energy and your strength because when those things become your onlys and they get into your life, your life is full of drivenness. And Isaac fills our lives with drivenness to achieve it. And when an Isaac fills our life with despair and anger and bitterness, when it's taken from us, they fill us with tremendous anxiety when they're threatened. You know, find the person who thinks if only they're married. Life will be great. Where are they emotionally when they're in a really solid dating relationship? Right? But boy, you threaten that relationship or the idea that they might be married? Way down here. You know why some of us live with tremendous anxiety and things? It's because we put things in the middle of our life that don't belong there and they control us. We're driven to achieve it. And as long as we think like we have it or we're on the way, we're all right. But if it's ever threatened, then we fall off the rail. Because we've put things in the middle of our life and they control way too much of us, even if they're good things. God doesn't want anything else to occupy the center of our lives or the center of our hearts. In Jeremiah 17, it says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water. It doesn't fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. Do you know what that's saying? It says if you're despondent, if you're in despair, if you're bitter, it's because something besides God has become your trust. God looked at something in Abraham's life that had become his little only. It had become the ultimate. It had become the bottom line. And as a result, Abraham was a slave to it. And God had to do something about that. Let her see. If he wants to master your life, your only cannot be subject to the circumstances of life. Your only only has to be God. If you want to master your life, your only cannot be subject to the circumstances of life. Your only only has to be God. God... God saw Abraham and perhaps his son, as good as his son was, had become his center. 
and life rose and fall fell for him with his son being at the center. And God said, I just can't let Abraham be a slave to that. The only way you can overcome the kind of tremendous worry, the up and down, the tremendous despair is if those things which are in your center get decentered. That's what tests do. Letter D, tests recenter. This is tough, tough to even say. Tests recenter your decentered center. Tests recenter your decentered center. What does that mean? If, you pass, if you're going to pass the test, what it means is God's going to help you identify whatever was in that center of your life. Move it where it needs to belong and get God right back in the middle of it. God's where the center should be. We sang it last week. Jesus be the center of my life. How do we know he's there? Tests. Tests show us what's really at the center of things. Tests showed Abraham what was really at the center. Abraham passed this test. Let's talk about how he did that. How do we pass these tests? <laughs> Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. Genesis twenty-two thirteen says that Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horn as in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. How do we pass these tests? Two ways, letter A. Abraham passed his test in two ways. He reasoned and he looked to the lamb. He reasoned. And he looked to the lamb. So when you're tested, when to obey God seems completely contradictory to his overarching promises in his life, and you're not exactly sure what to do, or if you know what to do, you're not sure whether you want to do it. How did Abraham finally get to the place where he could actually go through with this test? He reasoned. It's just amazing. Abraham was told by God, offer up your son as a burnt offering, and Abraham went. Why? Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did. So what does that mean? This is wonderful. First of all, it shows Christian obedience is never thoughtless. It always comes through reasoning. Letter B. Christian obedience is never thoughtless. It comes through reasoning. And all of the people that are logically minded in the room can start feeling some sense of hope here. When you really boil it down, God's not asking you just for mindless obedience. That's fine. But what this is suggesting to us is that here's the thing that is contradicting what most of us believe. Some people, well, just don't think about it. Just do it. By God, just be obedient. Just do it. That's all well and good. But what if thinking about it made it even more obvious to do it? He says, Abraham didn't just do it. He reasoned. He thought this through and a lot of us be like, man, just don't think about it. The more you think about it, you're going to talk yourself out of it. What happened? The more he thought about it, he did it. Christian obedience was never intended to just be thoughtless. It actually comes through reasoning. Some people say that Abraham knew God would raise Isaac from the dead. That's not what it says. That would be presumption and not faith. You don't see Abraham whistling a happy tune going up the mountain and saying, this is going to be great. Wonder how God will do this. There's nothing like that because there, there's nothing like that because it doesn't say Abraham reasoned that God would raise Isaac from the dead. It says Abraham reasoned that God could. Abraham looked at the capability of God and began to think about the big picture. Something that looks in the narrow of you crazy to obey God. But if you stand back and look at the whole picture, if you look at who God really is and who you really are and what he's done in the past for you, that last song couldn't have been more perfect for us this morning. If you remind yourself of who he really is, that he really is for us, 
and you look at the big picture, it seems rather reasonable to do the obedience to God thing. Letter C, there's nothing more reasonable than to obey God even when it looks crazy. The most reasonable thing you can do is obey God. Even when it looks ridiculous. This was Abraham's final test. It wasn't his first test. Abraham was continually tested. God told him at one point, I want you to go, but I'm not going to tell you where. He was told, settle down, but I won't tell you when. He was told, I'll give you a son, but I won't tell you when or how. And if you read his story from the beginning beginning to the end, you'll see that over and over and over and over again, Abraham failed the tests because he didn't trust God. He saw the command of God going this way, an apparent blessing over here, and he went where the apparent blessing was. And he took the apparent road. But here's Abraham, and he's reasoning. He's saying, Lord, every time I've tried to pit my wisdom against you, I've lost. Every time I thought I was wiser than you, I've screwed up my life. Every time I tried to save my life, I lost it. Every time I tried to lose my life through obedience to you, I've saved it. I've found new joy, and I will not be fooled again. You are capable of raising my son from the dead. Maybe it will be a literal resurrection, maybe not. I don't know what it is, but I know this. This obedience, though it looks crazy and it looks like death, will lead to a resurrection that I can't see. Friends, if right now to tell the truth looks like death to your business, death to a lot of money, obey. Stand back and look at the big picture. This is the one of all power. This is the one who created the world. This is the one who knows far more than we do. How reasonable is it for you to pitch your wisdom against him? That's what Abraham was saying. It looks like death, but there will be a resurrection. There'll be some way in which God will bring glory and redemption out of all of this. The second thing he did was he looked to the lamb. He looked to the lamb. We'll never understand how Abraham was able to do this if we don't understand a problem that a lot of people have had with this over the years. Uh, a lot of people say what bothers me most about this story is that God's telling Abraham to murder his son. God's asking him to do something immoral. I mean, we have to kind of challenge that a little bit because that doesn't sound like the God that we know. Was he asking him to do something immoral? He didn't say, Abraham, go, go sneak up on your son in the middle of the night, cover his eyes, slit his throat. That would be cold-blooded murder. What he said was offer him as a burnt sacrifice. But you have to understand if you read through the whole Testament, Old Testament, Exodus, and also I think Numbers chapter 3, if you read through there, um, you will see that God always told his people that the firstborn son belonged to him. Period. And it wasn't just, wasn't just the, the followers of God. Every, every ancient Near Eastern culture believed that, that the firstborn was heir to the family name and that, that, that in, in, in the, in the Jew, Jewish faith and the people who follow God, God just said the firstborn belongs to me. However, I will let you ransom your son back to you for five shekels. So they knew that when their son was born, it belonged to God, but that God would say, but I will let you buy him back for five shekels. So when God says to Abraham, no, you can't buy your son back. He really belongs to me. You, you can't ransom him back for five shekels. He, he didn't think that it was something immoral. He just understood that this was part of the covenant arrangement between he and God. And so he knew it wasn't something immoral, but it was very, very, very much unstomachable. So he, he kind of skipped over that, you know, because he understands Well, why did Abraham even accept that? Well, because he knew he was a sinner. And because he was a sinner, he owed something big to God, and that was his firstborn. The symbolism taught here is that because all of us are sinners, our representatives should be slain. The firstborn was considered the representative of the family, and what God said was the representative should be slain. Now, in the New Testament, we have this beautiful thing where our lamb, our representative, the New Testament calls him Jesus Christ, because I'm a sinner, he did give himself to be slain. He gave himself to be slain for me. 
They must have been thinking over the years, why in the, what about this five shekel thing? What does this payment point to? How is it that God would let us off the hook year after year after year with only symbolic sacrifices and payments? What does the payment mean? When God comes to Abraham and says, what he says, Abraham doesn't say this is immoral. Abraham realizes God is saying, you must pass judgment. I won't take payment for him. You must take his life for real. So it wasn't a, a morality issue. Abraham struggled with this. I know, God, that you're just. I know that you're right. I know I'm a sinner. I know Isaac's a sinner. You have a right to his life. But you promised. You promised you'd let him live. You promised great things would come out of him. God, how can you be both just and the justifier of Isaac? How can you be just and at the same time be the, how can you demand payment and at the same time be merciful like you promised? Why can't Isaac be redeemed? Why do I actually have to carry this out? It's interesting. He got up like you saw in the film, and he put wood on his back for sacrifice. He gets to the foot of the mountain. He tells his servants to stay behind. He says, we're going up alone. He put the wood on which Isaac would be sacrificed on his back. They walk up the hill. Suddenly, Isaac cries out and says, wait a minute. There's something wrong here. We've got wood for the fire. You've got a knife, but where's the lamb that we're supposed to offer as a burnt sacrifice? And at that moment, it says, at the top of the mountain, God will show us the lamb. It's very similar to what God our Father did when Jesus became our sacrifice and he put the wood of the sacrifice on his back. You know where this took place? It took place at a place called Mount Moriah, right next to Calvary. The same mountain that God had Abraham go up, God sent his son up, carrying on his back the sticks and the wood for his offering. Now in Abraham's case, when he got ready to plunge the knife into his son, God said, stop your hand and provide for him a lamb. He didn't give himself the same out. And when he sent his son up that mountain, he let them go through with that sacrifice. And in so doing, the blood of the lamb was shed so that you and I don't have to keep buying ourselves back. We've already been paid for, paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. How did Abraham pass the test? He reasoned. He said, if God really is who he says he is and who I believe him to be, then he will bring resurrection and intervention and life out of this somehow, whether I see it and understand it or I don't. But he also turned and he looked at the lamb and maybe you're going through something this morning. Can I ask you to do two things? Reason. Really think through this. And even if it seems totally crazy to yield to God on what he's doing, don't look at the narrow view. Look at the broad panoramic view. What's he already done for you? Has he ever forgotten about you? Has he ever left you hanging? Did he ever just leave you there floundering on your own? Or did he always come through for you? Did he always bring some type of resurrection life? Reason through this. Do you really want to pit what you think is best against what he thinks is best? But look at the lamb. Look at the lamb. How has God, God himself understands what you're going through. Look at what the lamb went through for us. And if God didn't hold back his own son, then what in the world should we hold back from him? Sometimes you're at that crossroads and you're in that tough place. But we have a God who sits on the throne who's available to us. This is how you get to be a great person. You understand the test, you meet the test, you pass the test. You might feel like, man, there is an assault on my life, Pastor. You have no idea. I feel like my life is just under attack. And it may very well be, but maybe what you're facing right now seems like it's an assault on your life because your whole life is wrapped up in things God is trying to decenter. That's why it seems like an assault on your life. It's not. You just need to say, now I know you love me. Therefore, do I, I will stand 
and be faithful to you. It's nothing compared to what you lost by being faithful to me. Your love overwhelms me. This is good news. What are you facing right now? Don't you see no matter what it is, no matter what anger you're struggling with, what anxiety, it's because something needs to be decentered. How do you decenter it? How can you obey God and trust God and move things out of the center? Only by looking at him and saying as you go up this mountain, now I know you love me. If you were willing to give all this up for me, I'll give up what I have to give up for you. It's nothing compared to what you've done for me. Remember this, it's only as you obey, not before you obey, that the wisdom comes. It's only as you obey, not before you obey, that the wisdom comes. I wasn't planning on sharing this. Let me just give you a 60-second testimony here of how this played out in my own life. Um, I don't know how long ago it was now. I'm trying to do the math. I guess 11 years ago, um, I had let things deteriorate in my personal life to such a point that I was just I was just wrecked on the inside. I'd opened the door to sin in my life, and I just I became somebody I really didn't want to be. And you know, I had shared this with my wife, and in her her wisdom to try and get me healthy again and get me back on track and take care of myself and get my body, soul, and spirit right on track. She said, you know, we really need to go talk to our pastor about this. At the time, I was a pastor serving under the leadership of another pastor, and I said, I know if I tell him about what all is going on in my heart and in my life, I'll lose my job because there's no way that I could continue being a pastor and try and get myself healthy at the same time. And here, all these words had been spoken over my life that God was going to use me in ministry and that God had this great ministry for me and at the same time, I had recognized in the center of my life, I had opened the door to all kinds of habits and addictions that didn't belong there. And it seemed like to me to come for, I just said, no, let's just try and deal with this privately. Let's try and let me get me some help, get us some help, whatever we need to do. She just said, Phil, I don't think you're going to get better if you do that. And guys, you want to talk about a test? I mean, here in my mind, it was like the, the, the right thing would be not to come. I mean, I'd have no way to provide. I'd have no way to take care of my family. I'd have no way. These are just the things that were going through my mind at the time. But ultimately, I mean, I remember my wife looking in my eyes and said, do, we, do you trust God? You preach it to everybody else. Do you trust God? Yeah. It just doesn't look like, <laughs> it doesn't look the way I want it to look. She said, well, if you trust him, then he'll help us. And I'll stick with you and we'll figure this out. And she went with me when we sat and we talked to my pastor. And it did result in me needing to just take some time away from ministry to get myself healthy. And during that time, I still wasn't convinced I had made the right choice many times because it was hard. I got up this morning, though. And my son came in the room, climbed up on the bed. And uh, go echo, go echo, go echo. <laughs> God brought resurrection. To me god brought life to me i didn't see it from where i was sitting in the test it seemed like this would be the dumbest decision ever it would cost me everything but i trust him he's so big he's so big let me pray over you this morning god thank you for giving us your very best in your son and as odd as i feel saying it thank you for tests because if something has gotten to the center of our life that doesn't belong there, maybe it's needing somebody's approval, maybe it's a relationship, a financial thing, a career goal, a possession, a person, even good things creep in there and get in the, way, the spot that you want to occupy. So we thank you for caring about us enough to risk our loyalty by giving us tests. 
But it all begins with the relationship with you. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've never made a decision to follow him, you'd say, I'm spiritually unresolved, but I want to have a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. You can do that right now in your seat. You can start that relationship. All it requires is that you believe in God, that you believe in his son, Jesus Christ. You believe that his, you believe that you outside of God can't be righteous and holy and pure and uh, get into heaven and have a relationship with God on your own. You recognize that you're a sinner. You've done life your own way up to this point. But you also recognize that Jesus paid the penalty for your sins and is willing at your invitation to forgive all of your sins, to cancel all of those debts, and to make his home inside of you, fill you with his presence, clean you from the inside out, transform your mind. That's the kind of relationship you want. You can pray a prayer just like this. You can say, dear Jesus, please forgive me. I've done life my own way, and I'm done doing that today. I confess my sins to you. I accept your forgiveness. I welcome you into my heart and my life. I now, I now receive you as my Lord and also my Savior. And I will follow you all the days of my life. In your name I pray. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer, then you are right with God. Let me pray over the rest of you, though. Because some of you are going through some tests. As a matter of fact, as I pray over you, I'm just going to invite our prayer team to come and find their places on the right and the left. I want to pray over you. But you might just need to share what you're going through with somebody this morning real briefly and let us come alongside you and pray with you. But let me pray over you this morning. God, many of us recognize we're being tested right now. Some of us thought it was something else, but we're recognizing this morning what I thought was a trial, what I thought might be a temptation. It's really a test. And I'm recognizing that there is something that has taken the center of my life that maybe doesn't belong there. And I need God. And I need you. And I need you to help me in this. So this morning I do reason, I think through this rationally and I remind myself of exactly who you are. That you are all powerful, that you know everything. That you see the beginning from the end, that you have good plans for me, for a hope and for a future, not to harm me. And I remind my spirit this morning, I strengthen myself and my inner man with those reasonable things that I'm not going to pit my wisdom against yours this morning. I submit to yours. But God, sometimes, sometimes we just need to look at the Lamb. Remember what you've already done for us. That you you gave up your very best for us. And sometimes we have to lay these things down for you that get in the way. And we have to trust you enough that you will bring resurrection and intervention. Whether we see it or we don't. There are folks in this room, God, that I care about deeply and you care about infinitely. Who are right in the middle of the testing season right now. I pray that this morning you will rush rush your angels and your presence around them. Surround them. Remind them that you are an ever-present help in our times of struggle. We love you, Jesus. 